Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. There are probably 50 families, and actually we're going to do a study coming out in a month, 50 dynastically wealthy families in the United States who've actually seen their wealth dramatically increase above and beyond what would be normal for just a, a family that was paying its taxes and having lots of children over time. Chuck Collins is literally a wealth of information on the rich and famous and the world's fabulously wealthy. Collins himself, an heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune, has dedicated his entire adult career to studying wealth and income inequality. You just heard him talking there about a new study on ultra-rich families in America. And Chuck Collins has a new book out, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. There's lots I liked about interviewing Chuck Collins for this episode. He has a great command of economic details and the fortunes of the jet-setting well-heeled classes. He will lay it all out in our interview coming up in a wee moment. Now, I'm going to invite Chuck back again sometime to pick up on a theme we left aside but needs further treatment. Chuck lauds all those generous, super-rich people who give their money away, and Chuck will share his own personal story. Left unsaid, however, is how some of the billionaire class spend and give away that money. There's the Irish-American billionaire, another Chuck, this one Chuck Feeney, who is reported to have helped bankroll the abortion lobby in Ireland. That's an expenditure that has deeply bothered many people, your host included. It's sad, it's distressing, and it's shocking. Feeney is not alone. There's George Soros, for example, who has also funded the abortion lobby in Ireland. All that aside, there's a fascinating and insightful detailed interview coming up in a moment with Chuck Collins, whose research and sense of authenticity I truly found sincere and refreshing. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. You know, I know a lot of billionaires. I know a lot of wealthy people. They're really, they're, some of them are great people. They're the people that you would want on your team to solve any problem. You know, I think that there's a lot of billionaire bashing that I think is, is not good. I think people should not be all grouped together. There are some very selfish SOBs who use their power who are selfish. They are politically selfish. They advocate for, I get all, I, I want to keep the whole wad and I have, I owe nothing to society. And I think that's, that's wrong. You know, we probably know the, uh, our fellow Irishman, Chuck Feeney started the duty-free shop. Yes. He's an exemplar to me. You know, he, he decided, you know, Hey, I have all this wealth. I want to do some, I want to have some fun while I'm going to give it while I'm alive. He set up the Atlantic Philanthropies. He gave $8 billion away. He shut his foundation down last year. He lives in a modest apartment in San Francisco. To me, he's an example of, of a happy and effective billionaire. Now, all you listeners out there, I have a message about a very special friend. Before I mention him, let me just say, joy is that special quality that makes one healthier, wealthier and wiser. But a joyful outlook is a tough thing to muster in the post-pandemic age of economic decline and social unrest. Fortunately, a new book is bringing hope and timely, actionable advice people can use to better their lives in this post-COVID era. From Ambassador of Joy, Barry Shore comes, The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress and Be Happy. Part workbook, part bullet journal, part memoir, this book serves as an inspirational guide to happiness and self-improvement 
in a time of unease and misgiving. Author Barry Shaw shares his incredible story of perseverance after being afflicted with a crippling disease that left him completely paralysed overnight. Rather than wallow in self-pity, Shore instead chose to better his life and the lives of others, discovering the joy of living regardless of circumstance. In The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress and Be Happy, Shaw reveals 11 unusual yet practical strategies for finding peace and happiness each day. The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress and Be Happy is released on May 11th. To pre-order and win prizes, go to barryshore.com forward slash book. That's barryshore.com com forward slash book. The book is called The Joy of Living, How to Slay Stress. To pre-order and win prizes, visit barryshore.com forward slash book. That's barryshore.com forward slash book. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Chuck Collins, author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Chuck is also Senior Scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck first told me about the Institute and his research work. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sure. Well, uh, the Institute for Policy Studies is a research and policy group that has been around since 1963, kind of more in the liberal persuasion. Uh, it was. It's a place where people have uh, done research on issues around these themes of inequality and uh, human rights and healthcare and the environment. So it's it's multi-issue. It's kind of like the Heritage Foundation or you know the th- other think tanks, a range of issues. And uh, I've been there since 2006 and have focused on these issues of inequality primarily in the United States. You come from a privileged background, but essentially you decided not to inherit your family's fast fortune. Tell us about that. They were in the meatpacking business in the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, I would tell you, yeah, I was born on third base or born, won the lottery at birth. Just uh, uh, I picked parents who were part of this very successful family business out of Chicago. Um, And it meant that I benefited, you know, I didn't have any debt going to college and um, you know, I had access to good healthcare and recreation and schools. And, uh, but I think at a fairly early age, I grew up in a wealthy suburb of Detroit. And I think it was something about being next to the city of Detroit, going down to the ballpark to see the Detroit Tigers play. And I felt like I was crossing into another world, both in terms of race and economic situation. Uh, and so I got attuned to these issues of inequality, the gap, the the, um, as it were. And, and, um, and then I, as I grew older, I, I, I came to realize that I think, you know, I didn't really think it was a good idea to have some people who inherited so much wealth and power through no effort of their own. And, uh, you know, other people who worked so extremely hard and had very little to show for it. And so, you know, I, I was very grateful to the, to my parents for the opportunities I was given, but I also felt like I wanted to try to make my own way past and and so I passed on the wealth. Later, I've you know come to appreciate there's no such thing as making it in your own way. You know that that there's so many other sort of advantages that I had that were just hardwired into my life. But uh, but that was my aspiration was to try to make my own way, if you will. Can you give us an idea how much money you left on the table? Well, maybe it was uh it was about a half a million dollars in 1985 or so. So you know if it had been just left in the stock market, I think there'd be you know, six, $7 million just, uh, or if just, if I just parked it in a bank, maybe it'd be $2 million or whatever. So, you know, not a, not a great gilded age fortune, but for, you know, if you, 
it's not the kind of money I probably would have been able to save based on my own efforts. But it would have left you comfortable for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I, I remember my father and who, uh, God bless him, still alive, you know, he, he, and, and is very patient and supportive of me. He, he said, you know, you don't have any idea what you're doing. You know, you're in your mid twenties, you don't have any family responsibilities, you know, this money could come in handy. What if you have a child has a special need or what if your spouse gets ill, you're going to wish you had that money to take care of. But my kind of response was, well, I'd be in the same boat as 99% of the people I know. I'd have to I'd have to get help, you know, from my community, my congregation, you know. I want to have a stake in building a society where you don't have to have a wall of money just to have basic security. So that was, you know, I was very affected by the Catholic worker movement, the Dorothy Day. And you know, I was in, in my early 20s, you know, just saw the corrupting nature of concentrated wealth and power and the idolatry of money and all that. So that was kind of my mindset at the time, if you will. You mentioned the Catholic worker movement and Dorothy Day, and that was during the turbulent 60s. Yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, well, you could have taken that money and set up your own charity or given, well, you did ultimately take that money and you gave it away to needy causes. That's right. So I, I did uh, I did give it to several foundations, and those foundations then in turn gave it away. Yeah, the, the, and the money still continues to work. It's just it's not in my name. And I, I had, you know, at some point somebody said, well, you could, you could be a philanthropist. You could give this money away. You could create a foundation. So, well, I think that's, you know, that's meaningful work, useful work, but it wasn't really what I felt called to do. Did you feel it was immoral to take that half million or was something very sinful about it? I don't know if I felt that judgmental. I think I just, I felt that I didn't earn it. And I, I didn't uh, necessarily even know how best to, to, to use it. And that others, I just saw other n- tremendous needs for it. So, and the reality is I knew, you know, what was going to be the worst thing that was going to happen is I was going to be white middle-class male in, in America, you know, like that was, you know, wasn't going to be that I was going to become destitute. I was, you know, I had a debt-free college education. I had knowledge of finance. I had employable skills, you know, I did I did learn some skills. I wouldn't recommend that I wouldn't advise anybody else do what I did, you know, not unless you have a plan to support yourself. Inherited wealth is something that's been very much in the news lately with all you've been writing about. And you went on to cover this whole topic exhaustively through your work you had this idea about equality, I suppose, and didn't want to live off a privileged upbringing, and you you wanted to take your own road. Yeah, and then I I think as I grew older, I be, I got more interested in public policy and the policy side of it. So twenty years ago, I remember there was a whole campaign to get rid of the death tax, was what it's called, but it's essentially the inheritance tax in the United States, the estate tax. There was a whole campaign in, in 2000, 1999, 2000 to get rid of it. And this is where kind of the personal and the policy aligned, because to me, it was like, well, it's probably not a bad thing for a democratic society to have a limit on on the buildup of inherited wealth dynasties and the estate taxes that that's what we have in the, you know in the it's the death duties in England and other countries but and so this whole idea that we were going to abolish the inheritance tax seemed like a bad idea and uh, I enlisted an un, a surprising ally in that uh, Bill Gates's father he called me up and said I understand you're coordinating a campaign of wealthy people to defend the estate tax. And he he joined in and he re- reached out and organized his peers. And at one point we had probably 1,500 multimillionaires and billionaires publicly come out in support of retaining the estate tax. And he and I wrote a book on why a healthy democratic society should put a limit on the concentration of wealth and power. You know, if you're, if you're an oligarchy or, a, uh, you know, Russia or something like that, there's no limit on it. But if you're trying to be a self-governing democracy you can't have you know inherited wealth dynasties walking walking around throwing their weight around so that was so it became kind of a concern about democracy and and not just tax fairness but democracy um, so that that got me interested in this in those issues of inequality and yeah I've been working on different aspects of 
how inequality disrupts democracy, how it's bad for the economy, how it undermines healthy economic growth, uh, all the different dimensions of it. That idea of repealing or keeping those taxes, it's controversial. So it, while you got support on one side, you have plenty of critics on the other side. Yeah, it very much plunged me into that debate um, of people who felt like, well, look, uh, you know, this is a tax on people's success. It's a tax on, uh, you know, it's a, it's a confiscatory tax. It shouldn't exist. Uh, and and yeah, I, I'm I'm I really enjoy actually those those conversations and debates. I think you know that I mean I I just see how corrosive it is to have such democracy distorting concentrations of wealth in a healthy society. Some would say that you can take that too far. Is it the role of the government to have these taxes on super wealth? We see that debate playing out right now, especially in New York State, where they're talking about really punitive taxes on the super rich. And we already hear talk about many of them just upping and moving to lower tax locations, it defeats the purpose of the exercise. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're, we're kind of living through, John, is this kind of, um, you know, we've gone to the point where taxes on the wealthy have become so diminished, you know, really for 70 years. I mean, if, you know, under Dwight Eisenhower, we had very, very high progressive tax rates and we taxed the wealthy and then we invested in public infrastructure, highway systems, knowledge, infrastructure, the eventually the technologies that we all benefit from. Bill, Bill Gates uh, Sr. used to say, you know, an inheritance tax is a, it's an economic opportunity recycling program. Nobody creates that level of wealth alone. You know, it's wealthy people are entrepreneurial and they may have a good idea and they should be rewarded for whatever innovation they bring. But we should recognize that we together create a fertile ground through public investments and infrastructure and the like that make that level of private wealth possible. That level of private wealth is not possible in Honduras because there isn't the property rights protection system and public investments for wealth creation. And so he, he'd say, look, if you, if you benefit from that system, like his son, Bill Gates, you should pay a progressive tax and that money should go to create the kind of public opportunities to enable other people to become wealthy. Uh, and that's the economic opportunity recycling program. Instead, we're seeing more and more of this wealth sequestered. It's not being taxed. It's not being invested in public investments. And we're sort of stalling out. The American dream of social mobility has pretty much stalled out. If you're not born rich, you're better off being in Canada uh, or England if you want to pursue the American dream. There's more social mobility in those societies. In the Nordic countries, there's more social mobility now than there is in the U.S., there are plenty still immigrant success stories where we've seen them in, in recent years. So it's not altogether far-fetched to say that poor people have arrived on American shores and have done well and have gone on to create businesses. But I mean, I guess some of it has to do with the scale of inheritance taxes. Most people are not against taxes per se, but if they are scaled up too high, then that becomes the issue for many. There's a breaking yeah. point. And I hear your point, which is maybe there's a there's a confiscatory threshold or there's a there's a level at which I mean right right now the the estate tax uh, falls on couples with wealth over 24 million roughly, and it's a 40 percent tax on wealth above that threshold. And there's other kinds of exemptions and ways to reduce that amount. So it's it's not at all you know it's not like. A, you know, FDR leveling a 91% tax rate on incomes, you know, above 2 million during the depression. People, you could say, well, that was, that, that's a, dis you know, that's, that's confiscatory at a very high level. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's, and maybe that's the case in New York, as you were pointing out, that maybe if you put together federal and state level wealth taxes, you're starting to hit a fairly high percentage. And maybe that's, that's going to backfire on the yeah. economy and on entrepreneurship. You have a new book out, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention, and it just talks about all this wealth hoarding across the globe. It's fascinating detail. 
um, incredible research. I mean, I'll let you sort of sum it all up and we can get into the details. It sounds as if there are large players out there, big corporations and billionaires who essentially pay minimal tax and they have it squirreled in tax havens and in shell corporations and in luxury apartment buildings, which are not even occupied. It's mind-blowing to the average person. I think you put it well. And, and what I try to zero in on is the, uh, the, what, what social scientists call the wealth defense industry, the, the sort of professional tax lawyers and advisors, wealth managers who, who kind of facilitate and enable that wealth vanishing act. Um, and uh, they they use a you know we're really talking about people with thirty million dollars or more. This isn't Uncle Jack with money in his mattress. We're talking about people with a very high level of wealth who can afford to hire uh, a create a family office or create uh, an army of su- sort of support professionals to help them you create trusts what we call dynasty trusts that live on for centuries and pass wealth on to future generations to create asset protection trusts, various tax, you know, kind of fate, bogus business transactions that make it look like you're losing money when in fact you're making money. And the, and the purpose of this wealth defense industry is to make some of the wealthiest people on the planet, as well as some of the biggest global companies, as you point out, look like they don't have a lot of money or income or wealth on paper. But in fact, they have a lot. This is a global system that we're talking about. Uh, and there's whatever, 2,500 billionaires globally. And more. there's more billionaire wealth emerging in the Asian Pacific regions right now. Uh, but it's a global system that can cause great, great good or great destructiveness. Where are they squirreling and hiding this money? What locations in the world? There are probably about 60 jurisdictions around the world that are secrecy jurisdictions, you know, the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and, uh, you know, the Isle of Guernsey and Mauritius and all these. These are countries where a small wealth defense industry has gone to their state political system and said, you know, if you alter these rules, if you allow us to create these forms of ownership entity, that'll attract investors and money. So the money is often booked in one of these secrecy jurisdictions. But then where is it? It's probably in the financial centers. It's in London, it's in New York, it's in the United States, because this is a very uh, terrific destination to park and retain assets. Uh, We have a relatively stable political system. We don't have a confiscatory tax state, you know, breathing down your back. So what we're seeing in the last decade is while Europe is starting to put more scrutiny on shell companies, on you know banks and who their account holders are, the U.S. has been kind of the laggard. And so more and more of that uh, dark money is coming here to the U.S. Ireland is regarded as a place where a lot of multinationals have located their operations because of its record low taxes on company profits. Even that low rate is is effectively much lower than the headline rate. Yeah, and there's a lot of multinational companies that love to have subsidiaries in in Cork or wherever you know in Ireland where they can own their uh, royalty, intellectual property, and uh, because of the low royalty taxes on intellectual property in Ireland, so Google and Apple will have subsidiaries in in Ireland for the purposes of moving their money around in this global shell game. Although Ireland has sort of pushed back in the last year or two, you may, you know, better Mm -hmm. than I perhaps. Uh, And all of a sudden Google and Apple are, whoop, we're up and we're up and out of here. You know, we're off to the Netherlands where there's less required of us. Uh, And that's unfortunately what happens when countries try to raise their standards uh, in a vacuum, they're pitted against each other in the race to the bottom. So, you know, part of, part of how we're going to fix this is kind of, we need to raise some global standards around, transparency, corporate tax reporting, and the like. So even when Ireland decides to raise their taxes just a tiny little bit, off they go. So that people and listeners understand that, how does that work in practice in a country like Ireland? The money is washed through the accounts, and where does it end up? 
Yeah, what happens with a giant multinational company is that they will set up subsidiaries around the world in different countries. And different countries have different tax systems, and they or they may have no taxes on intellectual property and royalties. Well, that's a good place if you're Bono and you want to, you know, have your uh, your song pat your intellectual songs owned in Guernsey. You you park your intellectual property there. So then it's through a process called transfer pricing. Companies pay themselves. the The mothership in the United States will send millions of dollars to the subsidiary in Ireland that owns the intellectual property for the iPhone and they'll pay all that money. So they'll reduce their taxable income in the United States. They'll increase their taxable income in Ireland, except Ireland isn't going to tax those capital gains and, and royalty income. They'll, if they tax it, it'll tax it at a very low level. And that's what the, that's sort of the, an example of the global game. So they'll, They'll just sort of move this money around. And because there's no country by country reporting, uh, no tax authorities know what other countries are doing. So it's just a, a way in which corporations are able to game the system globally. Where will this whole vicious game end or where is it headed at the moment? I mean, there's talk about harmonizing tax rates around the globe. That's what Biden has been pushing. Is that realistic? It is because the rest of the world is waiting for us to to step up for the reasons we talked about. And, uh, you know, when uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen says, you know, we should have a global corporate minimum income tax where you get 30 of the biggest economic powers to agree on a floor, that's very attainable. Uh, Those conversations are already happening within the EU. Um, and everyone understands the destructive nature of this kind of competing and race to the bottom. Um, so I think that that's quite quite realistic. Um, and as, if the United States goes along and England comes along and two or three other major economic powers come along, all of a sudden it could happen fairly quickly. You could create a global floor. And then the, those little secrecy jurisdictions, many of them are our Commonwealth satellite countries of the UK and the, and under, you know, if the UK and the US want to lean on those countries and say, yeah, you want to have uh, economic treaties with us, Belize, do you want to have tourism from the US? How, how quickly they will fall into line. So with a little bit of leadership, well, we can shut down this hidden wealth system very quickly. Now, during COVID, we've noticed and it's been reported the wealth of the 1% has skyrocketed. And whereas the middle class and those at the bottom haven't seen any gains or have, have taken big hits and been a lot of economic hardship. Could you talk about that a little bit? Why they've seen their wealth increase uh, so exponentially? Yeah. And actually, this is something that uh, the Institute for Policy Studies, my program, has done a number of reports on. We just report, report released a report last week showing that in the 13 months of the pandemic, U.S. billionaires, there are about 700 billionaires, saw their wealth go up $1.6 trillion. And that since 1990, billionaire wealth gains have gone up substantially, but a third of those gains occurred during the pandemic. So the pandemic has been very, very good to the wealthy. And part of that is that there are companies that are well-positioned to take advantage of this pandemic because they are cloud-based technologies, they're telemedicine, they're Zoom, what you and I are talking on now. Uh, they are entertainment and gaming companies to help us, you know, while away the hours while we're sitting at home. You know, the those companies are well positioned because their competition in some cases has been shut down. You know, face-to-face restaurants face-to-face entertainment, even stores that sold products, small businesses that sold products uh, have been were shut down at different stages of the pandemic. Uh, their competitors, online retailers and companies that were allowed to stay open have benefited from the pandemic situation. So I think we've seen, and then I think the economy, the, you know, certain companies, people are placing big bets that coming out of the pandemic, they will be even bigger and more powerful economic actors and they'll be the big fish that swallow up the small fish. So we're going to see even more consolidation. So all of that bodes well for a couple hundred corporations and a couple thousand super rich people. So the government has propped up 
a lot of these big companies with effectively grants they're publicly traded and many of their owners have shares in these companies the owners themselves became much more wealthy as a result is that the whole dynamic behind this that's one is uh propping up one some companies picking winners uh the the fact that the federal reserve has just kept interest rates so artificially low has been good for asset owners and 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 these companies uh i think the the way in which we we ent- that sort of the dynamics of entering the pandemic we already had these extreme inequalities of income and wealth we already saw had these kind of mega corporations that that uh you know were had not just a huge market share but political power and they they have supercharged their benefits if you will over the course of the last 13 14 months they've they've benefited from this bad situation Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Chuck Collins, author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Chuck is also Senior Scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. What about these big companies in Silicon Valley? They're very good at talking about equality and reform and ethics and all kinds of woke theories. Have any of them stood up and said, look, this is getting crazy. We don't need all this money. We want the little guy to benefit uh, here. We, we Tax us, please. Yeah, we're, we're certainly waiting for that aspect of the, woke, <laughs> the wokeness to emerge. Um, the, uh, I mean, you know, it, what's funny is, you know, probably remember this just before the pandemic at Davos, you know, mm. the, the, the global gathering of elites in in the, um, Switzerland, the whole buzz was stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder primacy. So the current, our current, you know, flavor of capitalism is hyper shareholder. Shareholders reap most of the rewards, whereas stakeholder capitalism recognizes there are customers, workers, communities, Mother Earth, and shareholders that there are other stakeholders and that the rewards should be more evenly balanced you know the return on labor is mostly going to cap to owners mm-hmm. the return the product productivity gains of the last 30 40 years have mostly gone to capital and to investors not to workers etc so da- the davos corporate elites were all saying well let's there are no good examples that spring to mind of company. You know, I think of like smaller companies like Chobani Yogurt, where the CEO said, well, I'm going to transfer 20% of the ownership of the company to the employees because they're helping create the product and they're helping create the wealth of this company. There's a lot of missed opportunities. I think, you know, Amazon could have uh, tremendously improved its reputation <laughs> during the pandemic by simply taking 20% of Jeff Bezos' wealth and transferring that as ownership stakes to their hundreds of thousands of workers. You know, they're, they're the ones who are, you know, putting themselves at risk in these warehouses working side by side without social distancing, you know, to get the packages to us. Why not make them shareholders? Um, so there's small scale efforts to expand, you know, worker ownership, worker stakeholder, but not, not any of the really mega companies. Uh, Twitter, I think, has done a little bit on that front. Square, the other Jack Dorsey company where, you know, you you swipe your credit card at the at the uh, farmer's market or at the tag sale or whatever, the, the small uh, credit. That, that company, I think, has a broader ownership model, but there's just not enough good examples, I'm afraid. Are we like to see the taxes on companies rise, the corporation tax rise in yeah, America? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, part of what happened was in in 2000, 2016, you know, we had this very high statutory corporate rate, 35% corporate income tax rate. The effective rate that companies actually paid was 
closer to 21%, which is actually very consistent with the, the effective rate in the EU, in the OECD countries. Under the Trump tax cut, they, they dropped that rate even further to the point where uh, actually the, the study last week showed that 55 of the largest corporations in the United States paid zero corporate income tax, including Nike, Archer, Daniel Midlands, you know, Zoom. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so these companies didn't pay any tax because they're they evaded. Effect- they, they evaded, but also their effective corporate tax rate was so low. And then they piled on a few tax evasions or deferred tax, whatever, and they are paying zero. So that's where, yeah. And that's, and that's Wall Street under, you know, competing with Main Street. I mean, the Main Street businesses don't have the same opportunity to, uh, to game their taxes. You know, the mom and pop stores or even medium sized businesses aren't playing these global shell games. That's where I think it does make sense to restore the, the tax rate, the corporate tax rate, move it back up, move it back up. So at least the effective tax rate gets above 15%. In your book, you talk about how a lot of wealthy individuals, foundations, companies um, have put their money into real estate in Boston, New York, and around the globe. There's some pushback in some cities to that. What's that about? All these apartment dwellings are empty, but they were just a way to park money. Well, part of this is you have to kind of get into your inner billionaire here. Now, imagine you have, John, a billion dollars. You need to spread that around. You need to not have all your eggs in one basket and diversify it. So, so you have some in the stock market and you have some in equities and bonds, but pretty. you also want to have some in other asset classes. So you're going to put some in land and real estate and jewelry and art. You're going to, it's a lot of money that you need to invest. So real estate is very attractive because you can hold, you can have luxury condominiums up and down the East and West coast and you have spread your risk around. Uh, But this is a form of wealth storage. It's not buying housing to live in. It's not buying housing even as a source of income. It's buying housing as a form of wealth storage, just parking money to hold its value. Same with art, same with other assets. So the, the downside is all this global money is hot global money is pouring into our cities and it's disrupting the local housing markets. It's pushing up the cost of land and housing. It's requiring new energy infrastructure to be built in some cases, and it's quite wasteful. There are benefits, obviously, you know, people in the building. So some of these apartment buildings are empty. There's no residents even in them. That's right. Some of them, or they're occupied very rarely, but but yeah, they're, they're essentially what they found in Vancouver, San Francisco, Miami, New York, huge percentage of these units are vacant. They're just like uh, empty safe deposit boxes in the sky. Wow. There's obviously upkeep. So they can write off those assets in their fancy accounting. Yeah, I mean, they can deduct those. They real estate has its own like fascinating little tax dodge scenario situations. But in this case, they're 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 it's sort of like um having money in a cash instrument. You know, you you it's a hedge against volatility in other parts of the market. So the, 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 you know, you, you would buy a luxury condo for $30 million, not because you're going to live there, not because you expect to make money on it, but just to hold its value. That's its, that's its uh, purpose in that case. Uh, so you're willing to pay the property taxes even. So, you know, some jurisdictions are like, oh, we'll take the property taxes from those luxury units. Uh, you know, they're not calling the fire department and the police as much there. There's no one there. You know. Uh, <laughs> And it creates jobs in the building trade. So there's a there's an upside, but there's this other disruption. And all of our cities now are just reeling with these housing crises for you know the middle class and for the the poor. You know, no, no you know, the, it's not a good time looking for housing. Well, the the real estate market is on fire in the New York. Well, maybe not New York City, but in many parts of the country outside in the suburbs of New York and. New Jersey and some other big cities. And there are different theories about it. One of them is the low interest rates. One is a shortage of inventory and people moving out of the cities. Another part of it could be just inflationary. Yeah, I think I think it's all those things. I think it's uh, 
the the fact that it, there's some anticipation that interest rates will go up, will have to go up at some point. I mean, it's only so much you can subsidize interest rates uh, with before there's some downside. Yeah, and you add to the mix this sort of global money looking looking to park itself, and that's another uh, factor. You know, one one thing is that coming out of the economic meltdown, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, a lot of people lost their home, lost their home equity, lost the ability to own a home. A lot of people are stuck in rental housing. Turns out that these big private equity companies have moved into rental housing. They're buying up thousands of rental housing units and even single family houses and renting them out because they know people need housing and they're willing to pay. Do you see more income inequality today than a year ago or a few years ago? Yeah, I think unfortunately the pandemic has kind of supercharged the inequalities. And some of that is ma- is masked right now. For instance, I mean, for, first of all, I think we, we don't have the data yet on how many households have depleted their financial reserves. You know, we know a lot, of, you know, a lot of households, one out of five households have zero or negative net worth. Living paycheck to paycheck or stimulus check to the next stimulus check in America. In America. And the next 20% probably don't have a lot of financial reserves. You know, you have one your one car repair, one big medical bill away from from destitution. So uh, you know, the bottom 40%, but what I'm curious, you know, where the middle 20% is, you know, has but I think what we saw is the inequality was kind of like the pre-existing condition coming into the pandemic. The most vulnerable people probably are more vulnerable there and because there have been these eviction moratoriums and foreclosure moratoriums you know the 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 wave of evictions has not hit yet but a lot of people are going to lose their housing whether they own it or whether they rent it and once those moratoriums are lifted so you see a lot of people losing their houses in the coming months or once you come out of soon COVID. As that, and that, soon as and that the- much moratorium lifts, we, ha- we know in the city of Miami that thousands of eviction orders have been filed. They're ready to go, boom, when the moratorium lifts. Uh, again, because there are these other drivers, people want to buy up this housing, they want to reoccupy housing. And a lot of people lost their savings, lost their jobs, lost their nest egg. Uh, so I think they're going to be more desperately uh, vulnerable people. And then at the very top end, we're seeing the market has gone gangbusters, up 60%, the S&P since you know, last February, the billionaires seeing their wealth surge. So I think that we're going to come out of the pandemic with worse inequality. Some economists are forecasting a massive growth in the US economy after we come at numbers we've never heard of before, five, six, seven percent growth. How does that square with what you're saying? Yeah, I think it I think it's possible. Partly, I mean, the hope is that some of the stimulus supports, some of the ways in which we supported Main Street built businesses so they could exist after the pandemic, uh, you know, some of the income transfer uh, initiatives that are all temporary will actually blunt the impact coming out of the pandemic. So that's that's the optimistic scenario. The, the pessimistic is it's going to be a highly unequal growth. Uh, it's going to be a accelerated recovery for, they say, the top 30% who are going to be back on their planes and back, you know, it's going to be the roaring 20s for, the, let's say, the top third of society. And we know but, what happened after the roaring 20s. Yeah. We had was the Great Depression. It wasn't so good. It was a temporary, no. it was sort of a temporary bust, boom, Partly because it was not an une- it was an uneven growth. I mean, there was a whole downside to the twenties. The twenties, we were still coming out of the gilded age, if you will, uh, this period of extreme inequality. But I'm afraid that the bottom sixty percent will not share in that growth in the same way. Who are some of the richest families in America today? When we talk about wealth, we think of these high tech fortunes. Uh, you know, the fact that we now have five decimillionaires. The old wealth families, the families that are sort of enduring multi-generational include the, the Waltons of Walmart, now in their third, fourth generation, the Mars Candy family, the Cokes, Charles Koch, still alive and his, his heirs. He's third, he's second generation. Now they're on to the fourth generation. Uh, the DuPonts in their eighth generation of wealth, dynastic wealth, 
there are probably 50 families, and actually we're going to do a study in that coming out in a month, 50 dynastically wealthy families in the United States who've actually seen their wealth dramatically increase above and beyond what would be normal for just a, a family that was paying its taxes and having lots of children over time. So Chuck, are you saying that they're not entitled to be wealthy or are you just saying that they should be a fairer tax system? You don't deny them their mansions and cars and their chauffeurs and their vacation homes and their opulence and all of that. Yeah, that thank you for asking that because I think, you know, first of all, I would say that wealth uh when it hits a certain level becomes a form of power. I would draw that line around 30 million. When you start to accumulate beyond 30 million, you are able to invest in this wealth defense industry. You're investing in rigging the rules, if you will, to, to protect your wealth. You know, And I think there's lots of wealth that comes from people who've created useful products, useful businesses, things that we as a society value. And that, you know, that the old maxim is, Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, you know. So you you build up wealth. Somebody creates a some widget that everybody benefits from. Could be Elon Musk today, who's creating interesting things, interesting technologies. Then the question is, what happens to Elon Musk, the next generation of Musks? I don't know the name of his child that he named a scientific formula, but you know, let's say the next three generations down the line, that's when we should be concerned about dynastic wealth. In a healthy democratic society where people pay their fair share of taxes, over three generations, you have more children, you pay your taxes, maybe even share some of that money through charity. The money dissipates. It disperses over time. So we should be very concerned when, take the Mars family, you know, in 1983, they have $2 billion, Now they have $95 billion. That's clearly, they have intervened to uh, stop the natural process of wealth dispersal. Uh, they are arresting this dispersal process and they're seeing their wealth concentrate and grow. And they're doing that because they're using their power to distort the system. And how are they doing that, Chuck? Well, in, in the case of the Mars family, they literally hired lobbyists to abolish the inheritance tax in Virginia. There is no state inheritance tax in Virginia because the Mars family got rid of it. <laughs> Uh, that they they hire lobbyists to advance a very selfish agenda. They fend off antitrust like regulation, so their company doesn't have to have competition. Uh, and they create they use dynasty trust to circumvent uh, the inheritance tax. So they're they're using their power in a way that's demo- anti democratic. So that's where I would make a distinction between. Wealth, blessings upon them, blessings upon you for your what you've done. and Live dynastic. in your castle and that's fine with you. Yeah, I think li- live and let live. But when you start to use your wealth and power to stop the tax laws, to change the rules in the society, to rig them in your favor, that's where we should sit up and go, oh, oh wait, that's anti-democratic. That's bad for the rest of the society. That's bad for competitiveness to have you know, anti-democratic monopolies, anti-competitive monopolies. That's that's when it's bad for the economy. Because I'm sure people listening to you now are saying, hey, Chuck Collins is a communist. He belongs back in communist Russia where he confiscated wealth. They, he doesn't like people who are wealthy and he wants to push these new tax laws. Is there yeah. a distinction in what you want and what they did in Russia in the oh. old days? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, part of I think we have an a, unfortunately kind of a impoverished imagination or discourse when it comes to like how can we create a healthy economy. So, first of all, I'll say I support fair market private capitalism, capitalism that is where we lift up and reward innovation. People, new immigrants and old immigrants who come together and start enterprises make enormous sacrifices, should be well-rewarded, should be celebrated for what they do. I also think we're living in a time in the U.S., you know, I think of like, uh, if you grew up in Ireland, if you 
but in, in, you know, we had Baskin and Robbins, 31 flavors. There's 31 flavors of capitalism. I've tried a few of them. They're quite yeah, nice. right. You know, <laughs> some you don't want to have a get, there's some you don't want to try more than once, right? Um, <laughs> bubble gum, whatever. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're the United States right now is what I call hyper extractive, extremely individual capitalism, which is different than Canadian capitalism, which is also a different flavor than Nordic capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a, a robust capitalist society with a higher social safety net where people are not destitute and afraid. You can have more public investments in social mobility so that you don't have to be rich to get a decent education or get reskilled if you lose your job. And where there are limits on concentrations of wealth and income because you have a higher progressive tax system. I'd rather live in one of those societies myself because there are just happier, better, healthier places to live. The rate of entrepreneurship in the Nordic countries is much higher per capita than the US because you don't have to be rich to take risks and start a business. You you don't, you know you're not, if things go bad, you're not going to end up living in your car. You can go back and get retooled and re-educated and try again. So I I, I prefer the Nordic flavor of capitalism. Uh, that doesn't you know, which is a long shot from state ownership, state curtailment of individual liberties, et cetera. Um, and I'll, I'll be with you on the barricade there if they, if they try to go too far in that direction, right? You know, um, I'm the Kerensky capital, the Kerenskys, you know, in Russia. We didn't, we didn't, we, the Bolsheviks t- killed us off. So there are 650 billionaires in the US right now. Some of them are doing the right thing. You mentioned the gates, any others? I mean, of, of that group, are any of them shining examples of those advocating for change? Any others that come to mind? You know, I know a lot of billionaires. I know a lot of wealthy people. They're really, they're, some of them are great people. They're the people that you would want on your team to solve any problem. You know, I think that there's a lot of billionaire bashing that I think is, is not good. I think people should not be all grouped together. There are some very selfish SOBs who use their power to fend off uh, who are who are selfish. They are politically selfish. They advocate for uh, a, I get all I, I want to keep the whole wad and I have I owe nothing to society and I think that's that's wrong. you know we probably know the uh, our fellow Irishman Chuck Feeney started the duty free shop. Yeah. He's an exemplar to me, you know he, he decided, you know, hey, I have all this wealth. I want to do some, I want to have some fun while I'm going to give it while I'm alive. He set up the Atlantic Philanthropies. He gave $8 billion away. He shut his foundation down last year. He lives in a modest apartment in San Francisco. To me, he's an example of, of a happy and effective billionaire. He made huge differences. He, he helped invest. He read a book uh, uh, prophetically called The Coming Plague, written about pandemics. And he invested in a number of countries to help them strengthen their public health systems. One of them was Vietnam, post, post, uh, you know, Vietnam War, contemporary Vietnam. Vietnam has one of the best public health systems in the world. And their response to the COVID pandemic demonstrated that. Wouldn't it be amazing to, to be able to look back while you're alive at the kind of ways in which you deployed your wealth that have made such a difference in people's lives. That, that to me, that's the paragon. Uh, Mackenzie uh, Scott gets a divorce from Jeff Bezos. She's got a giant pile of Amazon stock. She immediately signs on to the giving pledge, which is Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's pledge that billionaires take to give away at least half their wealth during their lifetime. She says, I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to empty the vault in the next 10 years. And last year she gave away $6 billion, you know, now her wealth was growing quickly. She just, she couldn't do anything about that. She gave away 6 billion, including 2 billion to help with COVID relief and to the, to the works of mercy, you know, clothing the hungry and feeding, you know, food banks and emergency response. And, you know, she didn't create this giant foundation in her own name. So you're pro-business, crony capitalism you don't like, unfettered capitalism, a, a more pro-people capitalism, if you will. I'm wondering, did some of that inspiration come from your days looking at the Catholic worker movement, which you referred to earlier in the interview? Well, I think uh, Catholic social teachings recognizes 
the value of freedom and individual ownership and juxtaposed with uh, the whole idea that uh, I'm trying to remember my uh, social teachings here, but I think it's there's a social mortgage on capital, hmm. meaning that there's no such thing as entirely unrestrained individualistic ownership, that society has a claim on all of us and including on wealth. Uh, so there's no absolute individual ownership. Uh, now that's the way I think of it is property is a bundle of rights and there is a community interest. Whether I own a piece of land, I don't just get to do whatever I want with that land because there's a community interest in what happens around me, what happens downstream, if you will. But I would just say to people who um, are concerned about communism that we should be very concerned about these extreme inequalities of wealth and how they're undermining healthy capitalism. That um, too much inequality is bad for the economy. Too much spending power in the hands of a rich and not in the hands of the middle class is bad for economic growth. It undermines aggregate demand. Too much inequality creates volatility in the marketplace uh, where the rich are speculating wildly and creating kind of the kind of casino foment ferment in the economy and working people don't have enough money in their pocket to participate meaningfully in the economy. So too much inequality is bad for healthy capitalism. We don't know how exactly this will all play out after we come out of COVID and the economy stabilizes or moves to a more normal functioning uh, dynamic. We could have a stock market crash and then we'll see where that puts all the wealth of the super wealthy. Many of them could see quite substantial collapses in their headline wealth. Yeah, we, we, we don't know, you know what the future holds. I mean, I think though, if we move in the direction of one, a better system of global transparency, a greater system of fair taxation where the wealthy are chipping in for the infrastructure that they benefit and enjoy, where we recognize, hey, we've all been depending on these frontline essential workers who have no health insurance, who are extremely vulnerable in terms of their economic situation. If we did a little bit to create a decency floor in the United States, that actually might be a positive development overall for society. It would be. I, there's no question in my mind that we can have, we can move toward a more humane capitalism mm -hmm. uh, that would have less volatility. Um, if we put people first and, and the health of the society uh, and really make some of the overdue investments in access to healthcare, I mean, it's just to me a sin that the United States has so many people who are so fearful and insecure, uh, who are afraid to go to the doctor because of the bill and postponing needed health care. Scandal to me that so many people don't have adequate dental care. This is the richest country on earth. You know, we have so much. And the wealthiest people in our society have so much more wealth than they could ever use in their lifetimes. And, uh, and, and I do talk to people all the time, how much is enough? Really, you've got enough for all your needs and desires, all the needs and desires of your children. What, what's it about now? Is it about power? Is it about immortality? I got bad news. You can't take it with you. Uh, maybe you want to build a building with your name on it. You know, you can have <laughs> immortality there. But, uh, you know, maybe make it a hospital. Maybe make it an edu a public school. You know, put your name on that public school. Tell you though. So you do believe in some kind of prudence? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, during a, a global pandemic that's disrupting the national economy and health, that's that is the time when you should go, you should probably borrow to make investments to stimulate the economy. You know, I I think, you know, spending two trillion dollars in 2017 for a tax cut that mostly went to the rich was not a good use. You don't borrow to give the tax cuts to the rich. The trickle-down stuff, you know, we've had 40 years of experimenting with trickle-down economics, and yeah. all we have to show for it is more vulnerability and, and an inequality. So I don't, I don't buy the magic tax cut theory anymore. The first $10 trillion of new revenue should come from a financial transaction tax that slows the market froth. Uh, it should come from a wealth tax on people with wealth over 50 million could raise 10 
I'm talking about 10 billion, 10, I'm sorry, $10 trillion over the next 10 years. Where would that money come from? $3 trillion could come from a wealth, an annual wealth. Half a trillion could come from a fixed up estate tax and inheritance tax. Uh, half a trillion can come from taxing capital gains income at the same rate as work on people with incomes over a million. And, and, and before the middle class gets a new tax increase, we can enforce the existing tax rules. There's a tax gap of a trillion dollars a year, according to the IRS commissioner testimony last year, meaning if we actually collected the money that the wealthy should be paying, there's a trillion dollars there. So all of a sudden, we're, we're talking six, seven trillion dollars of revenue over the next 10 years from the people who've gotten 40 years of tax breaks. To me, that's fair and appropriate. Uh, it may reach a point where, okay, well, that, you know, like you're saying in New York, well, people are going to say, well, I'm going to leave. I don't, I don't think so because there's... There are other benefits to citizenship. You know, there are always going to be a few people who are freeloaders and they don't want to have to pay for the services that they have benefited from. But the reason most of those billionaires stay in New York is because New York is the center of capital and culture and the people they want to hang out with. We've heard of numbers of wealthy people moving to Florida. We don't know whether that's temporary or it's a publicity stunt or it's real, but we'll eventually know, of course. You are a capitalist, but it's a kind of like a conscious capitalism or a compassionate capitalism. You wouldn't describe yourself as a socialist. What is socialism? Is it is, if socialism is social ownership of the means of production? I don't think that's a good idea. I think there should be sectors of the society that are socially owned, like the healthcare system. I would like to have a uh, British-style national health system just so people don't have to worry themselves to, to death over the illness. Um, I think we should have a social housing sector. Maybe a third of the housing stock should be in cooperatives, nonprofit owned, locally owned, mutual housing associations. That doesn't mean state ownership in every case either. It could be you know, a church corporation owns elderly housing. We have tens of thousands of units of elderly housing in the United States that are owned by nonprofit religious organizations. That's what I call social housing. So I'd love to see a third of the housing stock protected from the speculative market for the most vulnerable people, uh, elderly and younger and families that, that can't afford it. So there might be parts of the economy that are socially owned. That doesn't mean necessarily state owned even. It could be municipal, nonprofit, you know, that's to me that, so when people talk about communism and socialism and capitalism, First of all, we have to define our terms. I, I love the fact that we live in a free society. Well, okay, once a year I have to file a return, but you know, I'm a bit. I can go out and start a business, and I have to follow certain rules. But otherwise, I'm free to do that. I think that's that's what everybody wants. The idea of empowering residents of inner city communities uh, on low incomes to ultimately own those houses. Would you favor a program which would lead to them taking ownership? Yeah. I, I spent my entire 20s working with tenants to buy their apartment buildings or mobile home parks and own them as resident-owned cooperatives. Uh, all over New England, there are hundreds of resident-owned mobile home parks. They, we bought them from absentee owners. We figured out how to get the financing so that the residents themselves could control their destiny. A lot of times people have money. They even are, have an income stream. They can pay a monthly mortgage, but they don't have the sort of ability to get in there and buy the property. Maybe they need you know, a down payment assistance program that the city runs, but the social benefits of people owning their own housing is enormous. Chuck, can you share us a few more gems from your new book? Because a lot of brilliant material in it. Well, one, one kind of interesting thing is how uh, states in the United States are kind of the weak links. So Delaware uh, and South Dakota, those are states where if you're trying to hide your money, you you are like that they're kind of the weak links, if you will. And you can create a shell, anonymous shell company in Delaware, a limited liability company, and not have to disclose who the owners are. So that's one of the reasons people are bringing their wealth from all over the world to hide it in the United States. You can create a dynasty trust where they change the rules of trusts so they can exist forever in South Dakota. And so if you're, you know, a dynastically wealthy family like the Mars family I mentioned, you have billions parked in these 
dynasty trusts in South Dakota. But I would also say there are cracks in the system. There, I found interviewing people who worked in the wealth defense industry that some of them had regrets about spending their whole lives and careers, you know, just helping the rich get richer, and that they wish they had spent more money helping a new entrepreneur start up a company or helping workers buy a business or, you know, use their skills in other ways. And I think that's one of the cracks in the system. Uh, and I think it's totally fixable, as you and I have talked about. Enforce this, the rules, require transparency, join with other countries to pass treaties. We can, we can kind of shut down the harmful aspects of the system and build a healthier, more healthy democratic society as a result, where people are happy and where the rich pay their fair share, but also live in better societies. Well, you've certainly got the debate going with your new book, Chuck, The Wealth Hoarders, and it has been a pleasure having you as my guest. Thank you for this robust conversation. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.